Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Uh, I'll give you some time to, to find it. And uh, I'll be reading from the ESV, uh, Galatians 4, chapter 1, or chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And it says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we, are when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we, may, we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of God. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, as we come before the presence of your word, soften the ground of our hearts, open up our minds, so that we may not only understand your word, not only have a path to uh, implement it in our lives, but to be changed by it uh, deeply within our hearts. So Lord, we trust you to guide us today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you guys ever think about what happened between the end of the Old Testament, which is Malachi, and the beginning of the New Testament, which is Matthew? Like, what happened there? Does, it, does Matthew pick up right after Malachi? You guys ever think about that? There's actually a term for it. It's called the intertestamental period. And actually, how the, the, the length of that period is 400 years. So 400 years have passed between the Old Testament and the New. You guys ever wonder, like, what was God doing? Like, why is there silence during that time? Why is there, like, no book? Why, why, why is there nothing being said between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New? Like, what is happening in those 400 years, right? And, um, you know, silence is an interesting thing. And when God was silent during that time, well, you know, as far as, you know, the Bible being written, he, he had a reason for that. It wasn't something unintentional. Um, NPR this week had a segment about um, how the, um, the acronym LOL has evolved over time. Uh, when you ask older generations who use that word when it first came out, it was definitely an acronym. They knew what it was about, and whenever they used it, they actually laughed out loud. Like, that's how they used it, right? And you ask those older people, which I am one of them, <laughs> if you ask them, yeah, Duke's like, yep, you are, right? If you ask them, like, um, like, how do you use LOL today? Yeah, they still use it when they laugh. They'll still send it like, LOL, I just laughed out loud, right? And that's how you tell 
how old you were. <laughs> um, if you ask younger generations, um, LOL doesn't really mean laughing out, like they're not texting LOL because they just laughed out loud. When they text LOL, they just mean, oh, that's kind of funny, you know? Yeah, see, Song Tuck's like you. <laughs> He's like almost the youngest. I think my daughter and Caroline and Audrey and Benjamin have you beat. Uh, yeah, and Theo, right? But uh, the, the youngest from the older people, right? <laughs> um, if you ask the younger people, yeah, they're like, LOL. They didn't really laugh out loud. They're just thinking, oh, that's kind of funny. Uh, not only that, when you add LOL to the end of certain phrases, like, for example, I hate you, LOL, <laughs> yeah, like, you're joking. There's kind of an irony there. And um, <clears throat> also, if you add LOL to uh, the end of I love you, right? <laughs> LOL, it means... <laughs> It means, oh, no, 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 I fake love you. I don't really love you. <laughs> and so there's, there's a little bit of a double meaning there, and that's what the segment on NPR was saying, is how that's changed. And people don't really, at least the younger generation that, that uses LOL, they don't really, they're not really making any sounds, but there's silence there, and that silence is kind of intentional in some ways. Some, in some ways, it's a product of our culture, but... It's there, and silence plays a role. Even in music, silence is really important, right? Those, now, I'm speaking from ignorance, so I know there are music people here, so I'm sorry if I say something stupid, but um, those breath notes, I guess, or those pauses, right? They're there intentionally, right? Um, they're part of the song. It's not just there just to fill space, right? Um, the question is, why is God silent, right? Why is God silent? You ever wonder that in your own life? You feel like God's more of a concept than a person, than a friend, right? You ever feel like that you're praying to God, but you feel more like you're praying into the air than to someone who's actually listening? What happened to those years between Malachi and Matthew? Like, why did God choose not to communicate anything like he did with Moses, like he did with Abraham, like he did with Jesus, right? Like, why did he choose to be silent? You ever ask yourself that? There are usually a few responses you can create that usually uh, come out. Number one, he doesn't exist. That's why he's silent. There is no God, right? Another response is, the books got lost where he actually did say something. There were actually some books between that time, but they got lost somehow, and we don't have it today. Another response, especially for people who suffer and who've been through suffering or are suffering, is he doesn't care. He doesn't care enough. Um, there are a couple other responses that I'm going to bring out to you. They're both people who still believe in God and who have not abandoned the Christian faith. But the response of the first one is, he's God, and he does whatever he wills. He does whatever he wants. He's God. And that's a theologically correct answer and a biblically right answer. But you know what the problem is, is that the person is left anxious about it. Their heart is not at peace with that. 
it's like, yeah, he, he feels more like someone who does whatever he wants and doesn't really consider what people are going through because of his actions and decisions. The other response, the final response to why God is silent in your life and during those 400 years of intertestamental um, times is he's God and I trust him. He's God and I trust him. You see, when God chose to be silent between the Old Testament and the New Testament, he was silent for a reason. And it wasn't because he didn't care. It wasn't because he doesn't exist. It wasn't because so the books got lost or that he's some, you know, immature, like, uh, person up there who has a lot of control and just loves to see people suffer. He was preparing for the greatest moment of communication in human history. During those 400 years, God was preparing the way for the most epic moment of communication that humanity has ever seen. That's why he was silent. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain that as we move along. But how do you navigate life when God is silent? How do you do that? I'm going to give you two things today. Number one, know who you are. Number two, know what God did. These are simple things that you may have heard since you were a child, maybe. But I'm going to unpack it, okay? Know who you are. How do you know who you are according to our passage in Galatians? Well, Paul, the author of Galatians, he tells us two things. Number one, know that you are one in Christ. And secondly, know that you are heirs in Christ. Know who you are. How do you know that you are one in Christ? Well, first of all, we have to understand that oneness is not sameness. Oneness is not sameness. Okay? You aren't supposed to be like everyone else or anyone else for that matter. You're supposed to be who God made you to be. You are not made or you weren't born so that you could be just like some other human being on this earth, right? You were born with a divinely created purpose that is unique. And when we see chapter 3, verse 28, we see that Paul is saying, he's reminding the Galatians, you are all one in Christ, even though you are Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. So you see, being one is not the same thing as being the same. And you see, that's where the church can develop some blind spots, is where the church abandons its call to be one, and it starts pursuing the call to be the same. You're all one ethnicity or culture. You're all one socioeconomic status. You're all one, like, sex or whatever, gender, right? You see, you are called to be who God created you to be, not to be the same or to be like someone else that you're not. And you see, to know who you are, we forget. And the reason why we forget that we're one in Christ is because we forget 
that we're heirs. And it's easy to forget, and Paul explains why. You see, when he talks about being heirs in Christ, starting in verse 29 of chapter 3, going into verse 3 of chapter 4, he says, you are heirs according to promise. What that means is, you're not an heir because you earned it. You're not getting an inheritance because you were the good child. You are an heir to the throne of God. You are, you are an heir to the kingdom of God, okay? Because he promised it to you. He promised it. That's huge. It's huge. Because, and he goes on in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, he talks about what it means for an heir to be a child back in these times. And an heir that's a child actually was not that different from a slave in that society. When you were a child, even though you owned everything, and even though when you, when you came of age, you would get everything from the father, when you were a child, you were treated just like any household servant. There was no difference in experience. So you felt like a child, you were treated like a like you felt like a slave, you, you were treated like a slave, and there was really no difference. But the truth was that this child one day that was being treated just like a household servant, one day is going to receive the inheritance that the servant would never receive. One day. There was a date set for that child. When that child came of age, would become an heir to the throne, right? Now, here's the thing. That's what it feels like now for many of us. So there's this promise that God says. He says, you're an heir. You're an heir to the kingdom of heaven. You're an heir to the kingdom of God. You are sons and daughters of the Almighty. But the dissonance and the discrepancy that you are feeling is that I don't feel like that. Today, I don't feel like that now. My life has never felt like that. I've never felt like I had an inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. I felt like I was an orphan. I felt like I was fatherless. I felt like I had no family, no, no, no belonging. And that's the problem is we forget who we truly are in Christ. And that is a common theme during a time when God is silent. For a reason, right? And what God is reminding people, I'm silent, yes, but I'm not absent. I'm still here. And you need to remember that you are heirs in Christ. You are not slaves to the elementary principles of the world. What does that mean? The elementary principles of the world, chapter 4, verse 3, is different depending on what people group you were at the time. If you were a Jew, the elementary principles was the Mosaic law. You would try to earn salvation by obeying the Mosaic law if you were a Jew. If you were a non-Jew, a Gentile, the elementary principles of the world was your polytheistic laws and rules that you would try to live up to because everybody believed in some sort of God. Everybody believed in multiple gods. And so for the non-Jew, for the Gentile, their elementary principles of the world that they were enslaved to, that they felt like they had to follow, was their polytheistic laws and rules that their society put on them. And for us today, 
What, is, what are the elementary principles of the world that we forget that we're heirs? If you have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, if you have been forgiven and saved, you forget that you're an heir because your experience is not, an, not, a, not the life of an heir, but the life of a child that has yet to be the heir one day. And so you, because you've forgotten who you are in Christ as an heir to the kingdom, you begin to succumb to the elementary principles of the world in your life. For the Jews, it was the Mosaic law. For the non-Jews, it was the polytheistic laws and rules and regulations that was put on them by their multiple gods. And for us today, for us today, it's the expectations, regulations, and rules that were put on us by the brokenness that was there in our families growing up. The brokenness in our society, in the schools that you grew up in, the friends that you had, the brokenness at work that you are getting from your employer, the brokenness that you've received because you were a certain race or a certain ethnicity, and the brokenness of your socioeconomic bubbles that you either try to run away from or run to. Those are the elementary principles of the world. Those things tell you who you should be. Those things drown out the voices, the, vo the voice of God who tells you, I have created you this way. You are my daughter. You are my son. And yet all these things from your school, from your work, from your family, from your race, from your ethnicity, from your socioeconomic bubbles, they tell you something different. And we forget. We, we forget we are heirs and we become enslaved. You have to know who you are. If you have been bought and redeemed and forgiven in Christ, you have to remember you are not slaves. You are heirs to the kingdom. These are the religious and non-religious laws and rules that you put, on, you put upon yourself because others have put on you in the past that you follow in life. For some families, it's you are not my son or daughter unless you go to an Ivy League school. For other families, it's if you don't stay in this town, then I'm not going to support you. You're, you're, a, you're a stranger to me. For other families, or for your workplace, it's if you don't perform to this level, then I'm going to fire you. For races, it's, you know, this race or that race is better than the other race. This race is poor quality, but that ethnicity is higher quality. It's these kind of things that enslave us. And the reason why it enslaves us is because we forget who we are. Not only do you need to remember, not only do you need to know who you are during a time of silence when God is, he chooses to be silent, but you need to know what God did. And he did two major things according to Paul in this passage. One is external, one is internal. One is historical, one is experiential. One is objective, 
One is subjective. There are two things that God did, and you need to know this if you will navigate well, wisely, and with power and with confidence in Christ during this age of silence. Number one, God sent his son. That is an external historical objective act. Secondly, God sent his spirit. That is an internal experiential subjective act. I'm going to explain what I mean by this. If you look in chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, it says, when the fullness of time had come, beautiful, God sent his son. What that's referring to is not only the 400 years between the Old and New Testaments, but it's referring to the entire Old Testament, right? But I want to point out that the 400 years between the Old and New Testaments is included in that phrase. When the fullness of time had come, do you know what that means for that 400 years? That means that Alexander the Great had to conquer Persia. That means that as Alexander the Great was, now remember, this is the historical external objective part. So, so for those of you who, are, who come to sermons or t- Bible passages thinking to gain something to apply or to feel, you're going to have to do a little bit extra hard work in trying to see the value and be in that space of going through um, some external historical objective truths. Alexander the Great, okay, this is all God. This is during the time of silence. This is outside, this is bigger and greater than your personal life, right? Alexander the Great conquered Persia, right? And you're wondering, what does this have to do with anything, especially my life? I'm going to get to that. He conquered Persia, and when he came to power, he did a few things. Number one, he created a common currency. What happens when you have a currency that every, anybody can use easily? What's one of the results that come from it? You have nations coming together. Nations that were separated and that did business on its own internally are now doing business internationally. You have nations coming together. This is during the 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. You have a common language that is now being set up, Greek. You have Alexander the Great making a decree that all religions should be tolerated. Interesting, right? Um, You have increased, and because of all this, you have increased contact and trade between Eastern and Western countries. Not only that, during this 400 years of silence, you ever wonder where the Pharisees and the Sadducees came from? It came from during this time. It came during this time. It started during this time. And the reason why is because during these 400 years, there was a lot of political shifting and changing, like nations were struggling for power. And the Jewish nation, they lost a lot of power. They Their political influence diminished greatly during this time. But with Alexander the Great tolerating all religions, 
they got some of that in the, that freedom back, that national freedom. So they, they were able, as a nation, to set up structures and authorities, two of them being Pharisees and Sadducees. It came from this time. If you didn't know what the difference between the Pharisees and Sadducees were, the Pharisees believed in the super... I'll make it really simple. The Pharisees believed in the supernatural. Things like angels, demons, heaven, hell, and afterlife. The Sadducees, they denied anything supernatural, okay? They denied angels, demons, heaven, hell, afterlife. They denied the resurrection, everything. They didn't believe in that stuff. You know, that's not that different from Christianity today. You know, there's a, there's a part of Christianity that is very, they believe in the supernatural. We're one of them. Right? Doesn't mean we're Pharisees. Well, in one sense, we all are Pharisaic, right? But there's a, there's a part of Christianity, do you know, that denies everything supernatural. They deny miracles. They deny the Red Sea. They deny the virgin birth. They deny Jesus Christ as the Son of God. They have churches. They teach just like we're teaching. Of course, the message is completely different, but... They, they believe in nothing supernatural. They're taught like this in their seminaries and in their schools. And they preach like this in their churches. Right? You know what the similarity is between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, even though they're very different in that way? The similarity is that whether they believe in the supernatural or they deny the supernatural, both groups of people at that time, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were works-driven. Their works, what they did for God, for the institution, for religion, for themselves, right? It was driven by works. It was action-defined, action-driven, right? Action is not a bad thing, but when it's action that's just driving you, that's what can happen. You can find common ground with people that you really differ with. Um, here's the thing. Also politically and spiritually, Herod the Great came into power. You know what he was called? You know the title he was given? He was given the title King of the Jews. King of the Jews. Because he was the Roman authority to govern the Jewish people. Right? So he was called the king of the Jews. And during this time, the Jews lost political ground, as I said. That's very important because they were seeking salvation through political maneuvering and through political power. And during a time when the hearts of the people were seeking salvation and rescue for themselves, driven by their works, through a political platform for another non-Jew to come over them and to be declared the king of the Jews is an insult to their entire nation, right? Now, here's the thing. During this time, when the Bible says in chapter 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, who was born of women, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So during a time 
of silence, right? You see, God wasn't, he wasn't absent. He wasn't just laying back, laying low and doing nothing. During this time of silence, God was bringing nations together, creating one language so that multiple nations can communicate and understand each other. During this time, religions were being tolerated, so it gave an opportunity for the the faith of the Jews to have influence and freedom to be exercised. It gave an opportunity for the Messiah to come and to freely teach the religion of the Jews without being persecuted by the Roman government. Right? And during this time, at a time when the Jews themselves were looking for a political Messiah, God orchestrated the political powers so that the, a Jewish political Messiah would be impossible under the rule of Roman government and Herod the Great, the king of the Jews. And during that time, after those 400 years, is when God sent his son so that all nations could have exposure to the Savior, so that the message of the Savior can be communicated to all these nations through one language, freely, without persecution from the Roman government, but there was persecution from within because the parts of the people were not ready. And the king of the Jews that they were looking for, God completely blocked any hope for them to find salvation in politics, and they found salvation in a spiritual savior not a political one. And that's what God did objectively, historically and externally. And if you look in verse 6 and verse 7, he not only sent his son, he sent the Spirit of God. He sent his Spirit where? Not to Galilee, not to Nazareth, not to Bethlehem. Where did he send his Spirit? It's not someplace outside, but inside. It says in verse 6, verse 7, God sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts. And it says, crying, Abba, Father. Now here's the thing. How many of you guys, you don't have to raise your hands, how many of you guys have heard teaching on Abba, Father, as just being, that's daddy, or it's communicating intimacy? Right? I've heard that so many times. But one thing that's really interesting in this entire passage, and it fits in the context of this passage. Abba, Abba is Aramaic, and Father is Greek. Abba is Aramaic, and Father is Greek. And you see, intimacy is being communicated here, right? Yes, that's very true. With language, there is, there is a connection and a community that happens. You know, as offensive as sometimes it is to hear, like, you know, sometimes I remember growing up, my parents would speak Korean in a public space, and I remember some people saying, you know, this is America, speak English, or go back to your country. <laughs> you know, some, something offensive like that, right? And I remember being very offended, but on the positive side, I'm not saying that's good, it's not. But when you, when you are able to speak the language of someone that you want to connect with, that's huge. It's huge. 
there is a heart bonding that occurs. And that's there in Abba Father. But when it says that it's Abba Father, what you're looking at is you see two languages, two ethnicities, two different kinds of people coming together, forming a community, an intimate community, because of the Father who is above them all. And you see a people who from their hearts, you see the Spirit, God sent His Son to Israel, right? To Bethlehem, to Nazareth, right? Galilee. But God sent His Spirit into our hearts. And when it says, Abba, Father, crying out, Abba, Father, what happens is that when, when you become a child of God, that child cries out because the Spirit of God is in that child's heart, the child cries out to God, Abba, Father, in an intimate, connected, right, inclusive way, right? Um, it says, you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. If you are living in a period of silence where you feel like God is not active in your life, you don't hear him, you don't feel him. You, if, you, if you could live Sunday through Saturday perfectly and God didn't exist, if you're in that season and you would be happy, right? Not only, not only can you remember who you are, but you have to, one of the things that you can do is you could cry out to God from the heart. You could cry out to God from the heart. It's one thing to say, dear God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this uh, time together. And thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to say, God, I'm going to be honest with you. I haven't felt you for years. I haven't wanted you. I haven't desired you. In fact, I think I can be happy without you, day by day. God, can you help me? Can you save me? Can you, like, when you go to God, admitting from your heart what your heart struggles are, instead of going to God with these pre-prepared, with these prepared prayers that are supposed to sound right, are supposed to make people feel a certain way when they hear it. Instead of that, you're just, you go to God from your heart where, the, where God is sending his spirit, where he sent his spirit, okay? That will break the silence. It's not formulaic, but at the same time in God's word, it says he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, and because of that, we are crying out, Abba, Father. And you see, there is something that happens there when we go to God in raw, from-the-heart dependence. What I mean by that is relationship with God is not a cerebral thing. These are the things that make you forget who God is. These are the things that make the silence seem much more silent. If, re if Christianity has been cerebral or rational, and that's it. 
if Christianity has been behavioral or just doing stuff for God and the church or for the people that you don't want to be shamed by and that you want them to love you. If relationship with God is just a collection of momentary emotional situations that you try to rely on from time to time. Oh man, things were better in youth. Things were better when I was in elementary school. Things are better in this other place I was at, right? When you have that kind of thinking, right? And you're, you're relying back on these emotional moments that you've had a long time ago, but for years you felt nothing, right? Relationship with God is not merely cerebral or rational. It's not merely behavioral or just doing stuff for God or for the church. Relationship with God is not just a collection of emotional moments that you're trying to have by going to retreats and concerts or by whatever. Relationship with God is a day-by-day acknowledging and grieving that you are not a good person, that your heart is wicked desperately. Relationship with God is day by day relying on Christ, who is the only person that is good, who is able to heal you and make you good like him. Okay? Relationship with God day by day is about enjoying the freedom of being who God created you to be uniquely. Right? I'll give you an example. Um, with certain casual situations growing up, yeah, I was very t- uh, time conscious as a person. Like for me, I've told this, I've shared this with some people. Um, being on time was late. So like if you had to meet someone at 10, being there by 10 was late. For me, you had to be there like 9.50 or 9.55, right? Just so you can think through and you know, have a place where you're ready to engage, right? Now here's the thing. When having that kind of personality in casual situations, I offended a lot of people. I offended a lot of people, right? And there came a point when I, because of the situations I experienced, I was like, I didn't let myself be that way. So I started relaxing. I was like, okay, I gotta get rid of this. This is wrong, this is wrong, right? But you know what's interesting? When it comes to the people that I'm meeting today in my life, they really appreciate it when I'm prompt. And when I'm early, they appreciate that more. Especially busy people. Busy people who go from one meeting to another, if you're early and you end early, they're really appreciative of that. And what I'm, re- what I'm saying is, I'm not condemning one personality or the other. What I'm saying is, I realized who God made me to be. And I came to a point where I realized that God also is a creator of time. And, you know, when he said, when the fullness of time had come, he, God sent his son, right? You see, it wouldn't have been right if it was, if God sent his son earlier than everything that happened within the period of silence. And it wouldn't have been right if God sent his son later than, the, than when he did. You see, 
I realized that in one sense, God is very prompt. Because when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. And this is not a condemnation for being, you know, being more casual with time, but what it is is it puts the dignity back into promptness and the integrity of keeping time without, without you know, creating a culture of oppression, right? And pushiness, right? And pressuredness, right? And it's the same thing with any kind of thing. You see, what's happening is every part of your life needs to be shaped by the gospel. And that can only happen when, it, when your heart changes, where God sent his spirit. You see, God didn't send his spirit to your brain, to your, to your reason. He didn't send his spirit so that you could just have a right theology rationally. He also didn't send his spirit to your behavior so that you can just act the right way. He also didn't send his spirit to merely your emotions so that you could just feel the right things but never really think the, think the way that he wants you to think and live the way that he wants you to think. You see, God sent his spirit into your heart. And that is a core change that happens when the gospel transforms you from that deep core that the scripture tells us that's where God sent his spirit, into your heart. And when your heart changes, everything changes. How you manage time, how you manage your friends, how you, how you approach work, how you think about work, how you feel about work, how you approach your studies, how you think about your parents, how you think about the brokenness in your life, how you think about the injustices that, and the wrongs that people did to you, it changes. Just look at Joseph in Genesis. You meant it for evil when he was talking to his brothers who sold him into Egypt, who were going to kill him. He said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It also changes how you think about yourself. You begin to realize that you're not good. That you actually offend God every single moment of your life. And you become free enough to admit to God and to admit to people that you are not good. That your heart really wasn't in the right place. But you're going to cling and depend upon the Savior who is good. And he's going to make you right. He's going to heal you. He's going to change your heart. And by changing your heart, he's going to change your life. You see, during this period of silence, God is not absent. He's already sent his son. And he is speaking to you in your heart. And it's so easy to deny him, to ignore that part. Because we want to listen to our reason. We want to listen to our behavior. We want to listen to our emotions. But... Are we listening to the Spirit of God in our hearts? Where the hardest, most uncomfortable realities are about ourselves. And you see, once you are willing, once God opens your ears, 
so that you listen to what's going, what the Spirit is doing in your heart, deeply inside of you. That age of silence, it's not silent anymore. You begin to know God. You begin to know his presence. You become satisfied with him. Whether in brokenness or in fullness, whether in sorrow or joy, suffering or celebration, you begin to be full of God. because God has opened your ears to listen to the Spirit of God who is in your heart. I want to challenge you. It's not easy, but it's probably one of the most important things you could do in your life. In this age of silence, understand that God is not really silent. He just, he's just choosing to communicate in a different way through the Spirit living inside of you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together.